if you believe in our conceptions of human rights and our conceptions of democracy, you have the opportunity for self-governance and you have human rights for no other reason than you're human. Welcome to the Social Science for Public Good podcast, a project of the Virginia Tech Institute for Policy and Governance and VT Publishing. In this series, we attempt to make social science theory available and accessible for social change practitioners, such as activists, nonprofit leaders, and government officials. My name is Brad Stevens. And I'm Yagasha Bakshi. We're both PhD students in the Planning, Governance, and Globalization program in the School of Public and International Affairs at Virginia Tech, interested in the question of how to build a better world. Welcome back. So last couple of times we've talked about the three dimensions of power, the visible and invisible forms of power. How are you feeling at this point? That power is everywhere. So mm. it's, uh, uh, I'm intrigued to see where we go next, but it certainly feels like uh, what we've talked about so far is intuitive, but it helps to lay it out. That's the, that's the best of academia in my mind. It's something that when you hear it, you're like, oh, that totally makes sense, but you hadn't framed it that way right. before. And that's what I think we've had had thus far. Right. Well, I was also thinking about the last two conversations um, with our guests and how they alluded to power structures being interwoven. Um, during the conversations, we have also come to realize that there is not a sole person that holds power or exercises power. And in a sense, there are like forces that come together to establish such uh, power structures. Does that make sense to you? It does. I think, you know, it's that's not to say that there aren't people that hold power, I think, but that there mm-hmm. are those people are often empowered by different structures that, that put them there. And so I think it's. Uh, it's always important to realize that there's that one person, there may be that one person that that feels like the target and, and where this power comes from, but there's almost always more complexity about what's going on behind the scenes, even in our, uh, even, you know, I think we've talked about even down to the level of our marriages and, and right. elsewise that power is enacted by various structures in, in all of those layers. Yeah, thinking in terms of um, the housing crisis and you know, recent reports of how the Gen Z will not be able to afford a home, I don't know, well, till they're well in their 40s or 50s or something like that. Um, And it has really deeply affected not only the Gen Z generation, but also certain sections of the society. And often the way it is projected is that, oh, the market is not doing well, the market is down, or the economy is not doing well enough to, to, you know, solve the issue of homelessness. Um, Do you think that it is as simple as that, or there actually might be, you know, invisible forces that are colluding to ensure that, um, to ensure this kind of housing crisis or other issues of um, similar nature. Um, well, I think I certainly think it's more complicated than just as, uh, the market or economic understandings mm-hmm. of it. But I, uh, I'm intrigued by your use of the term collude here. I, I hadn't framed it, but hearing you say it. Uh, now makes me think about, uh, I think we often think about these forces as actors in and of themselves, and I'm not sure that they always are, right? Like that sometimes these things get out of human hands in ways that we don't quite understand. Immigration fears perhaps being a good example of where, you know, somebody started immigration fears, but then it starts running riot and and you're not quite sure who to trace it Mm -hmm. back to. So, you know, this idea of collusion 
is interesting. It gives agency in a place that I'm not sure where agency actually lies, which that's part of the interesting thing here, I suppose. I'm not sure who holds power or whether it's something you can even be held at this point. Right. And that's the big question that we're going to be looking to dive into on today's episodes. How can power exercised by various agencies come together to impact our lives. And to help us think about this, we've got Dr. Max Stevenson from our very own Virginia Tech joining us to share his expertise. Dr. Stevenson currently serves as a professor of public and international affairs and the director of the Institute for Policy and Governance at Virginia Tech. His research and teaching interests include civil society and democratic theory, social change processes, international development, human rights, and refugees and peace building. He's the author or editor of 13 books or monographs and more than 80 referred articles and book chapters. He has also authored more than 400 commentaries addressing US and international politics. You ready, Brad? Looking forward to it. Welcome, Professor Max. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for the privilege. I've been looking forward to the conversation. Well, we've been um, chatting with other folks before this um, on different pieces of power and different theories of power. And um, when we think about power, it's been defined, it's been conceptualized in in many different ways. Um, Can you start us off by um, sharing with us how you understand power? That's a cult, very complex and multivalent question, I think. The classic sort of comp- composition about power is to argue that you can make someone do something. Um, I think in democratic terms, uh, that's problematic because the problem, of course, being consent or assent and that being such so vital in democratic legitimacy. So in democratic terms, power becomes much more complicated than simply being able to get someone to do something you wish them to do. And indeed must in some way be with their consent or assent. Then it becomes um, a question then of matching interests, matching possibilities, and having the individual of their own free volition making the choice. And I tend to work in that domain and with that set of assumptions rather than simply whatever it takes to get someone to do whatever it is that you would like them to do, which is some more classic exposition of just raw power. Well, you know, we've talked last time, last week on here, we talked to Dr. Stephen Lukes about his dimensions of power. And at a similar point in time, uh, there was some conceptualization about urban regimes as, as a way to think about power in, in certain communities. Can you share a little bit about your understanding of that and how it came uh, to be conceptualized? Well, it's an interesting um, development in the literature and essentially I think it has three characteristics as it evolved. One, and I found this intriguing from the beginning, is it's political economic. So there was a concern amongst interested um, scholars, Mollenkampf and then later Stone and others, um, that we had to understand that at the local level particularly, which was the level you could ease, most easily study, um, power is evidenced in political economic terms. And in our culture, in the United States particularly, a dominant set of actors will always be capitalists because we are a capitalistic economy, because we um, in every way are dependent upon uh, the economy in so many ways for 
the well-being and livelihoods of most folks in our country. So that it's an almost axiomatic that they will be important actors. That is, capitalists, commercial actors will be important. So the question isn't whether they will play, the question is with what relative authority and power they will play. And I think it was a signal insight to say that it isn't just government decision-making or indeed tertiary actor, that is NGO uh, decision-making, um, but we really need to be thinking about this as a complex constellation of how all the actors are behaving at the local level, and then what kind of coalition of governments is established in consequence, with who playing what relative roles. So the second characteristic that that suggests beyond the political economic is it becomes dynamic. But you can accept, at least I do, gravitationally, that a key player inevitably, and it would be silly for elected leaders to ignore them, will be market-based actors because they are responsible for so much employment and so much that's vital to the community. So an elected actor would be stupid, to be put, put the matter bluntly, um, to ignore the, the importance of those actors in any kind of governance regime that might uh, happen at the local level. But given the fact that it's always a coalition kind of arrangement, the question isn't, or at least as the literature has evolved, the question isn't simply that market actors will always dominate, but under what conditions do they play the largest looming roles and why? And under what conditions can their natural authority be challenged? And where? Where does one find the political and economic resources to challenge uh, their role should it become undue? Right? And of course, um, it can become undue. You can defer too much to market actors. Uh, elected leaders can defer unduly to market-based actors. Um, and that's, in fact, a problem. You know, we can discuss this further, but that's a problem in our regime and has been for decades or has been across our history. So the third thing, then, uh, that I found characteristic of that literature and that I like about the regime's literature is this not only is it dynamic and interdependent and not only can you sort of think about the, the roles of um, these actors in the political economy as being significant in whatever sort of governance coalition emerges at the local level. But, but then beyond that, the tapestry of those isn't univalent. You can see lots of different sorts emerging. So far from, it will always look like this. We will always have, in the early part of this literature, we will always have downtown elites involved. Yes, you will, but they won't always necessarily um, be in control of all decision-making. There is, in fact, at least in a healthy democratic situation, uh, the opportunity always to develop um, aroused coalitions that can mobilize and say, not so far, not so fast, you may not do this in the name of whatever set of values. And as you look across this literature, you see mayors running for office, usually populist-type mayors across the country, lots of examples, in which they turn to neighborhoods and they say, uh, they run for elections saying, oh, downtown elites, they have too much authority right now in New York or in Philadelphia or in Cleveland or wherever. And what we need is more attention to our neighborhoods. And they will try to develop a coalition to push back in political economic terms on that dominant coalition's interests and claims. Um, so again, you're not arguing that those folks won't play. They're going to play. The market elites will play and they'll be vital. But the question is, in some sense, maintaining them in a space that remains democratic and allows for the possibilities for the polity to be established in ways beyond their simple interests. 
And that's always the dynamic that one tends to see across time um, in these terms. And I find that really interesting and illustrative, right, of how across time you see these regimes evolving. And there's not one kind of outcome, but there are these elements that seem to be appearing and reappearing, you know, across time. Thank you for such a great overview of the theory, Professor Max. Um, like you said, that it has found its application in many different fields, and it has been applied in political science, it's been applied in urban planning, different kinds of urban research uh, fields as well. What, according to you, makes this theory so appealing and so relevant in terms of application? I think because, um, and I neglected to say this, but I think because it does allow for democratic mobilization, and it says, uh, in some sense, that the game is not done, the jig is not done and overwhelmed, that there are possibilities to mobilize um, for alternative interests, which is a, the essence of democratic agency and possibility, in my view. And I like that about the theorization. I also think it tends to accord, not perfectly, um, but it tends to accord with, with democratic reality, with what has evolved on the ground. We have seen populist mayors make claims against downtown regimes. We have seen um, at the city and state levels, we have seen people reclaim uh, against capitalist interests um, the governance of their own state, the governance of their, I'm thinking of Montana, for example, when I say that, or the governance of their own community uh, by making those claims. I should also say one of the things that I found fascinating, and I didn't mention this directly, but I should have, is you know the, when you think about the role of nonprofits in in the political economy in these terms in regime formation, it's especially complicated because a lot of nonprofits are going to find their money ultimately in the market sector. So philanthropy disproportionately will come from the market sector. Um, folks that are going to purchase their services, fee-for-service kinds of nonprofit um, services, that will come from a healthy market economy disproportionately. And we don't tend to recognize that as much as we ought. And if they're tied closely to government, why then they're tied very closely to whatever the ideological moment, whatever the ideological framing of the services being rendered um, to a specific kind of government. So their role can be particularly complicated. They can, in some ways, mobilize, but there are real strictures um, about how far, how fast they can mobilize alternate structures to oppose market elites because they are themselves so tied in foundational terms to those elites or to the firmament that they represent, that is, to employment or to uh, disproportionately um, in the community. And I find that fascinating because people don't really think about that very much. And the person that, um, you know, I think in the literature touches on this most deeply, of course, was Clarence Stone. Um, who kind of explored this fairly thoughtfully and said, or very thoughtfully, and said, this is something we, we need to pay more attention to. So you can find resources to mobilize, but within limits in, in that sector. Hmm. I find myself thinking about uh, the dynamic nature of this that you mentioned earlier and, and, and linking it to the mobilization piece, uh, and then taking it back to this conceptualization of power, uh, whether we think of that as the domination or the ability to accomplish things or however we want to frame that. 
is there in your mind a sense that there's power lying in these different places that needs to be mobilized for these things to happen or is it the ebb and flow of those different uh, power actors how is that kind of playing out in these spaces it's a fascinating question i'm not sure there's a single answer i do think they represent latent resources for mobilization so the question is always <clears throat> in leadership terms the question is always how to get that mobilization to occur there's a huge literature on these questions in sociology, for example, and it's a fascinating concern. Um, I'm not sure that I would argue that there's X number of resources laying latent for you always to mobilize. That's not exactly what we're talking about. It's more dynamic than that. It is, in fact, a question of searching for the ways in which you can persuade, in democratic terms, you can persuade populations to rethink assumptions about the governing ideals under which they're, that are currently regnant, and then saying, see, follow me, and we'll have a little bit different allocation or maybe a markedly different allocation of resources. Um, I'm assuming, of course, that all of this is done with the public good or public regard rather than a simple autocratic kind of claim in which one, one is mobilizing um, for personal authority or for personal power or for party power or autocratic power. But in, in the broader scheme of things, if one is running as a populist um, or a reformist mayor, for example, the argument isn't um, typically that we should all hate capitalists, but rather, nope, got it out of kilter here, the neighborhoods have been forgotten. We need, in fact, to recognize there's more to the city than the downtown interests, and as your mayor, I will see to this, right? Um, and this happens recurringly in city after city, community after community. And the resources to do that are, in fact, mobilized across the political economy um, beyond the downtown interests um, to, in fact, push back and reestablish, if you like, a different balance. But I'm not sure there's any particularly, uh, there's places to go and think about, but there's not like three things here and four things there that you can always count on. One of the things that the theory has been really uh, successful in kind of explaining is that uh, local decision-makers uh, decision really do matter. Um, and on the other side, I feel that the theory didn't do justice in terms of talking about bottom-up power approach. Can you help us understand these different, um, It I did guess. not do justice? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Yeah. Um, I do think it did establish that um, local decision-makers do matter and that the choices they make can matter in real outcomes for the citizens they serve. So that, that is an important thing. <clears throat> in terms of how much and in what ways, they have been rather vague, I think, in, the, in, the, in this particular literature about um, how specifically some of the mobilization strategies are to occur. And it tends to be more structural and functionalist in its emphasis rather than uh, almost sociologic, which is what I've been propounding. So I tend to agree with your criticism, I think. <clears throat> That's not to say, so let's make a distinction here, there is a, a place in the theory for exactly what we're talking about, right? So, and it does tend to say this does occur. What it doesn't do is to tend to the dynamics that say a more sociologic analysis might um, about how it could occur or the ways in which it has occurred. There's some of that. Um, but it tends more to be talking about Mayor Pete Flaherty in Pittsburgh was able to mobilize the neighborhoods. And then you find yourself asking, how? 
and by what mechanisms, what sorts of arguments were advanced, and specifically why were they successful. Um, they do tend to be arguments about balance. They do tend to be arguments about those interests being unduly represented. But there's also tends to be um, a more subtle and variegated set of claims about what sorts of interests in society should be addressed. And there, I think your critique is sound. They don't really often get to that level of detail um, as well as we might wish. But it's, um, you know, the Serpent regime framework has a lot of connections to democratic theory, which is an area where you have a great deal of interest and have, have worked in. Can you share a little bit about your kind of ground understanding of democratic agency and theory to, and how it relates to these questions of power? So my interest in democracy really centers around, um, I guess you, you could say, its innate paradox. We, what we say, what we say is we are going to give individuals who we know are flawed, give individuals who we know routinely do not possess full information, give individuals who we know may or may not possess integrity, give individuals who have a long list, in short, of different kinds of potential shortcomings, notwithstanding all of that, we're going to give them the right to govern themselves. And in some sense, I like to put it very bluntly, um, we, am, we develop a regime in doing so in which individuals are permitted, encouraged, choose your word here, to be stupid, because human beings are. And in so doing, of course, what they can do is endanger the rights of others uh, in their selfishness or in their avarice or in their pick your long list of potential vices. And nonetheless, we say we trust you to, in fact, assume this awesome responsibility of shared governance. That fascinates me. There's an innate problem there. And the simple-minded, not simple-minded, but the answer in political, political terms forever has been the society needs across generations to acculturate its citizenry if it is to remain democratic to a specific set of virtues in which those uh, individuals become aware and other regarding um, are willing to mediate their own interests, their own avarice, their own claims uh, on behalf of a broader aspiration. Um, how to do that, of course, is another thing altogether with 330 million souls in your polity or a billion plus in the case of India. Um, and all their heterogeneity and, uh, and that rich tapestry. So I think fundamentally that democracy rests on this really cruel paradox. That's number one. That's where I start from. Number two, um, it rests in our case and in many of the democracies around the world on another cruel paradox, which is we try to marry however we, in the United States, we're continuing to fight about how we understand equality. But however we understand equality, we try to marry that with a system in economic terms that by definition creates massive inequality, and that's capitalism. And so we say at the bottom that we would like to have capitalism creating vast inequality alongside a system that nominally at least espouses equality for all human beings and that accords them responsibility to um, address their common claims and at the same time 
we know that they're going to be ensconced in massive economic inequality. So how do we marry, marry these things? And the, the truth of the matter is unevenly across time. And what we tend to do culturally, and this is why acculturation of values becomes so significant, is enshrine one or the other to, to a lesser or greater degree, in which we say, and this is part of this same way of thinking about regime theory, in which we say democratic values should be ascendant amongst us, or we say no capitalist values should be ascendant amongst us. We all need good stuff, and capitalists give us the good stuff, so let's keep the other people out of the way. Let's not make any claims on behalf of governance, on uh, too many claims on behalf of those folks because then we won't have all the good stuff that we want, the material requirements that we all like and the like. A very um, common appeal to humanity. And so how do you equip people to kind of deal at, at bottom as they deliberate about these choices in the public commons uh, to deal with these deep paradoxes? And I find that endlessly fascinating and how uh, across time our polity has done it poorly and badly. Um, at times and well at other times or relatively well at other times. But it, it is an eternally important challenge. And if you are to maintain any kind of aspiration for equality in human rights, you have to hold in check the massive inequality created by the system that you've um, adopted for economic gain. On the other hand, most Americans at least, this is not true necessarily around the world, long ago decided there is no better economic system in terms of their personal um, possibilities for advancement and enrichment. And so we are kind of ensconced in a culture that says, well, we want this, we want to argue about that, that being equality, um, but we're not even clear which one of these we want more of at any given time. And that's essentially the public conversation, right? Within that, because of these differences of power that obtain uh, at various points, and because the power amongst the actors in the political economy is so unevenly distributed, we have at various points and at various scales um, this kind of common problem of marginalized populations. And so how do we address those individuals' needs, those groups' needs often, as against majority claims? Again, majorities can be stupid. Majorities are guilty of majority tyranny um, all the time. And democracy can empower majority tyranny. Um, the issue then is how do we protect those minorities? How do we protect those who are marginalized by the economic system that we're all um, otherwise espousing? And those have become eternally important questions in our polity. And that takes you to the question that um, I find really interesting, which is the problematique of democratic agency. So if you believe in our conceptions of human rights um, and our conceptions of democracy, you have the opportunity for self-governance and you have human rights for no other reason than you're human. Not that you're white and human or a male and human or orange and human or Hindi and human or whatever. You are human. And uh, not that you are a specific language or ethnic group or tribal group. Not that you have disability or you don't have a disability. None of those things obtain. You are human. Uh, but we, we also deal with human beings, and human beings hate, human beings oppress, human beings um, use weakness, human beings exhibit all the vices I mentioned earlier. And at the same time, what we want to do ultimately is mobilize what is innately significant about democracy, which is that innate agency, uh, to allow them themselves as a group to overcome those propensities. Uh, for vice, those pr propensities to oppress, those pr propensities for injustice, 
in the name of those broader values. And of course, it's an eternally difficult struggle, not just in our country, but in all countries where you have democratic institutions. And you find repeatedly across American history, whether it's Poles, Irish, Jews, African Americans, Native Americans, you name the group, Catholics, whatever group, um, folks will be in disfavor. Um, their rights will be taken away in large measure or in smaller measure um, by local, localized tyrannies, localized majorities, or even larger majorities. And in violation of their, their democratic agency and misuse of the agency, the democratic agency by that, broad, that broader group. And so the characteristics and the questions and the cultural values and norms that mediate agency fascinate me for that reason. It's a vitally important question. Um, one final, and this is a curious irony that we deal with in, in field work with which we're involved quite a lot, is that you can convince a people that not to exercise their agency. It's not that you can take it from them. That's a misunderstanding. You cannot. It's innate. But you can convince them or persuade them not to exercise it. So women, let's say, um, under any kind of generalized understanding of the principles of human rights should have equal rights. But in culture after culture, including our own, they do not. Why is that? Well, it's partly because they're kept from exercising those rights by powerful groups, including men. It's also partly, in some instances at least, uh, they have been persuaded not to exercise their agency to demand otherwise. That's fascinating unto itself culturally. So as you deal with those kinds of attitudes, inbred and acculturated, how do you get people to reconsider those in peaceable ways is a fascinating problem as far as I'm concerned. That makes sense to you? Yes. Um, you've also opened up a discussion towards um, other dem democratic societies outside of the United States. Do you see the relevance of the urban regime theory in a non-U.S. context? I think it can be as long as you're attentive to the peculiarities in that context of, for example, if we're talking about Germany, it's a federalist system, but it doesn't look like American federalism. It's in fact a deeply industrialist kind of oriented peak association kind of federalism, which is different than ours. So if you have that understanding of, okay, this is how German democracy works in a parliamentary framework, but they still have the fundamental issue of the three sectors of the political economy, they're still dealing with creating governing, governing frameworks, and you're attentive to that, I think it can be a helpful heuristic, right, in terms of thinking about the dynamics that are relevant, but it has to be culturally specific, politically and economically contextually relevant as well. How is it that those coalitions can think about utilizing their own power or, or when there's a question uh, about which power needs to be mobilized, how best should these kind of coalitions think about what they're doing and conceptualize how they're coming together? I think it's a complicated question and it probably has multiple levels and I'm probably not going to do justice to all of them. But if you take the example, say, of Cesar Chavez and the agricultural workers, First, it's a conception that you can do something. Um, that's the agency level question, or, or indeed the efficacy level question related to agency. We do possess power to make claims against growers in his case. And we do deserve you know, different working conditions. We do deserve better uh, labor and wage conditions. Um, so that first order question becomes important. The second one is allied, but very subtle, and that is, 
you know, by what uh, kinds of arguments can I amass allies, and who would I, who would I reach? And there, it's a, it's a funny thing. You can get allies you wouldn't have imagined sometimes, uh, who become your friends for whatever their particular interests. Uh, but you have to be attentive to the possibility. And so as a typical matter, you know, I'm interested typically in keeping my hand out, proverbially, right? So uh, anybody want to play? Um, and trying to make the case for why this is um, an ever important question. Um, I do think that you can run some dangers here. The human rights organizations have a very devilishly difficult, balanced, um, really, to deal with. They, they will have natural allies who believe in the, the principles or values and with, that they represent. Will say, yes, of course, you know, we shouldn't be, you know, mistreating the Yazid or the Zoroastrians in Iran, for example, um, a priori. And then there will be other people, not necessarily. Um, or I don't like this or that about that set of beliefs, or why should they be permitted to do X, Y, or Z, the same kind of questions that we see in the United States. Um, and so their problem is hewing to the, the valued principles, but at the same time finding arguments that will persuade the coalition that isn't already with them uh, to consider the possibility of joining, and for what reasons. And that's a difficult kind of political question, usually. And what leaders do when they traverse that is make that what they try to do, I think, if, again, public-oriented leaders, um, is make probative choices about what might persuade larger numbers. So President Obama was all about everyone can be joined by hope, everyone can be joined by this, this notion of a color-free society in some deeper sense, um, and he amassed a coalition of support accordingly. Um, part of it, too, and this is part that the leaders can't really address as they think about resources in the sense that you use the term, um, is contextual. You know, it might, might work in 2008, but it might not be there in 2016, right, or 2018 when you're in the middle of COVID. Um, and so the context matters, too, in terms of what those possibilities are for the, the strategies of rhetorical amalgamation, I guess I would call them, that may be appropriate at a point in time that can be rooted in the set of claims for really what are calls for the remedy of an injustice. Um, so at least those scales are always available. But I'm not sure there's one strategy, in other words, that I think you'll see this also vary by culture, Yugasha, um, that uh, there's any one strategy available. There'll be multiple ones at various times. And people, you, you see, you know, elected leaders or would-be elected leaders testing them accordingly. What might be persuasive? What might give me a coalition of supporters here? Um, and why? A little earlier, you had also talked about the role of nonprofits and how it is complicated when, you, when we think about the local political scenario. And the theory also kind of stresses a lot more on the collaborative capacity of private agencies or where the money is coming from. In today's world where nonprofits and other think tanks are kind of thriving, how do you see this theory playing out? Well, again, I think it's a hard question for nonprofits um, with with resources coming from market actors or from government. It's always a question of balance. It's always a question of, and what typically happens in practice is buffering, where what what the literature calls buffering at the organizational level. 
So if, as here at the Institute, you have a, essentially, we are a nonprofit essentially, you have multiple funding streams. Um, sometimes you can use one to buffer the claims of another. Um, and that can be useful, right, in terms of maintaining some operating autonomy and therefore capacity to act apart from the claims being made by this or that funder, this or that claimant um, on you. Uh, and a lot of nonprofits practice that. They have to in order to be able to maintain some degree of discretion um, in addressing changes in their um, environments. And that, I think, is where a lot of NGOs find themselves. But again, there's no one NGO. We've got NGOs that are 70% of their funding is government. Um, you know, either local government passed through from the federal government of the United States, a lot of social welfare work, uh, nonprofits are in that situation, or um, in some cases in international relief organizations, you might get 75% of your money from the federal government or from um, one of very few funders internationally. Um, and so there you, you have a much more circumscribed, I'm not arguing no discretion, but a much more circumscribed discretion to play the kind of roles we're talking about in coalition building and to use your discretion to try to assist um, in specific ways. Um, but I think what most nonprofit folks, the leaders try to do is in some way look at the firmament and, and look at uh, the strategies that are available to maximize the autonomy and discretion with which they can act on behalf of their vision and mission. Um, unless, of course, they've lost sight of what their vision and mission are and are doing whatever it is they perceive the marketplace will demand. This all gets even more complicated by my lights, and I haven't solved this by any means. Um, going back to the cultural question, because in the United States and around the world we've exported this for the last, I don't know, 60 years, and it's not new in the American context, it's just re-emerged re as dominant under, in the last 60 years, um, under neoliberalism. We have celebrated market institutions and market values. And what that means is that we've told nonprofits for decades that you are less than, unless you've adopted market values, market orientations, market down to market management strategies, mimic those and so on. There was also a movement in the 70s and 80s and going into the early 90s in public administration, and not new, it goes back to the 20s anyway, in which we told people that they had to make public management into private management, use all the strategies you would see. And even at this institution, it really always rankles me. Um, I get things in my email from people here who talk about our students as customers. Right? And what, that's exactly an evocation of what I'm discussing culturally. It's the dominance of that prevailing point of view. It's also even more subtle than that for nonprofits. So not only do, are they persistently told to do these things, get educated to do these things in many instances, but then it goes deeper. And their board members, the people that actually run their organizations ultimately, um, all come or disproportionately come from banking or from business, retail or otherwise, and, and those folks don't know anything about, frankly, nonprofit organizations or, for that matter, um, any other kind of entity than the dry cleaners they run or the bank they help run or whatever it might be. And so they bring, and it's not so subtle, this claim about, well, you got to look like what I know, and what I know is a for-profit institution, and that makes it more problematic still. 
Um, so running a nonprofit in those contexts and finding the discretion space to which you allude can be really difficult because you've got a constellation of folks, some nominally aligned with you, that in fact can make it more difficult um, to play this role of being able to amass resources somewhere in society to make claims against the dominant actors uh, at the local level who are typically, again, typically um, going to be market-based. So I don't think it's hopeless, but boy, is it complicated. And I'm always, I always tell students um, interested in nonprofit leadership that, you know, yours is the most difficult form of leadership I can imagine. Um, it's much harder than running a dry cleaners. It's much harder than running a local retail shop. It's much more difficult even than uh, public management though that, or leadership, though that's a, a supremely difficult area too. But it's even more difficult for these reasons um, to be running a nonprofit and to be public oriented, to try to serve these populations that no one else wants to serve by definition. Uh, that's why the sex sector exists. Um, and to do it in a way then that uh, gets you out of this box and really can get out of the box so manages it effectively as you can. Well, you know, we've talked a little bit about within a democratic society that there's inequality across. The, the goal is to, is to, to have this place of equity and, and, and equality. But we also know that people across the spectrum have different levels of power in any given situation. Institutions, that, when we're talking about a regime, when you're talking about individuals, institutions, and, and others interacting together, each has a different kind of component of power, and that can be based in monetary, financial stuff, it can be based in positional power, it can be charisma. Can you share a little bit about how those differentiations of power come into being and how you can potentially, as a, as a social change activist, start thinking about how to work across those in, in a coalition of some kind? Boy, that's a hard one. Um, I appreciate all these difficult questions. Um, they come into being often innately. So uh, a lot of your examples struck me because I was like, I was thinking, wow, yeah, that was typical. Um, there's a big debate, depending upon which literature you go to, about whether various forms of fear, which are closely linked to racism, for example, um, arise in the human condition. I don't know you. You look different than me. I should be afraid and therefore can be utilized by the nefarious. Um, to derive opposition against you know, that population, wherever that population may be. Part of it, too, is symptomatic of just desire for power, a desire to amass riches, perquisites, social standing in the community, another example you gave, in which um, one can do that uh, in some communities by saying that so-and-so is less than me. I must demonstrate that so-and-so is less than me in order to be able to have um, these perquisites that I would like to have because, you know, I like good stuff. I like lions at the end of my driveway that say I'm rich. Um, so I think those are all kind of endemic to the human condition. Um, there's been a debate in social science about whether it's, you know, part of human nature. Um, lay that aside for the moment, just say it's exhibited in human behavior, however you want to think about the broader question. Uh, and then you're back in the box of how do you protect against some of those when, in fact, you're dealing with a democratic paradox of asking people to assume responsibility to address them? And then your question goes further still to coalition building beyond that. Um, 
you know, the answers have been uh, debated for thousands of years. All of the major religions, all of them, um, preach countercultural claims, right? They're all, they're all talk about acknowledging those who are perceived as less than as your equal. They all talk about remedying injustice and reaching out to those who are marginalized. And they do that, I think, for good reason, because human beings preternaturally do this kind of thing in an ugly kind of way. Um, they all also typically, uh, I shouldn't say all typically, they all do, um, emphasize um, both empathy and dignity and kind of the innate respect for the individual as individual. How do you do that at the group scale? Well, you try, you're desperately as leaders, you try to establish an openness and a transparency and a willingness to welcome all comers. Um, and to dignify them as interested in whatever it is you're jointly trying to undertake. Um, and then you work with them accordingly. And you try to both, on the one hand, exemplify that um, as your orientation, and on the other, get others to understand its signal importance as well in principle, right? So then you can be begin to build that. There are lots of things that can get in the way of that, including the individual personalities of those you would try to attract who don't want to play or want to use whatever perquisites and power you're able to, to garner or resources you're able to garner for their own personal purposes. And we'll be working pretty quickly across purposes to you. That's the nature of organizational politics, group politics, and reality. And all of that means that it's Sisyphean struggle, really, in the sense that there won't be an absolute dichotomy that I will realize the nirvana of an empathy-based, dignity-centered, you know, um, group coalition that will be enduring forever. But instead, you'll be building it all the time. You'll be revivifying it all the time, and you'll you'll need to understand that you're going to need to be engaged in those processes for their own sake in order to overcome propensities that would in fact drag them down, drag them back, or disregard them for other purposes. Um, it's the nature of you know, human interaction and I think human social um, organization. But I am persuaded, and this is the idealist in me, I suspect that it's the, what matters most is being moored and being able to articulate in some deep-gauged way what those those principles are, what those values are, why they matter and why they should matter in whatever interaction you're talking about in the amelioration of injustice. Um, it's easy for autocrats and would-be autocrats and demagogues of various sorts to hate. It's harder in many ways uh, to demonstrate why not to hate and why that can be so pernicious, right? So in social mobilization terms, to do it in a positive way is in some ways more difficult than to do it in a negative one. Um, but again, I think the nature of um, democratic politics demands, if you take the belief in equality, however understood, seriously, that you get in that space and stay there and find ways to continue to work at the margins where you can um, to exemplify those possibilities. What do you think the future of uh, study of power looks like? Uh, I think it's going to continue to be, uh, well, right now, because we're having an autocratic moment in the world, people are really interested in the accretion of power to people who are flat out lying, the role of the fantastical, um, you know, the imagined, um, the will belief in the magical, the magical, in this case, evil claim. Um, 
why people are aggregating in social spaces on, on virtual media in the way they are and willing to believe what they are. All of those, I think, are areas of inquiry now that people are engaged in and trying to understand how it is we're seeing power acquisition occurring in anti-democratic ways. Um, it's no longer enough simply to have a reasoned conversation. You can't. So how do you with the bedrock claims we just had on the table in view, how do you um, interact with this changing environment? And I think folks that are interested in power are trying to explore those dynamics, and rightly. And it's not, I think what I've been thinking about in those terms, and just to be brief, is none of it's new. You know, it, it, what the permutations are, we didn't have social media 40 years ago, and didn't have the internet and so on, but um, the dynamics, they're not new. You know, if you, fascism is fascism, and you can argue we have uh, fascism today, and we had it in the 1920s and 30s, um, and it has many similar manifestations, and many similar claimants, and many similar ways of, of mobilization. So we do need to think through how in the present environment, um, which is this sort of mediate, everything is mediated. Um, we can deal with those changes technologically and otherwise, but not simply technologically, uh, in order to understand more deeply the same kinds of human propensities and address them successfully to maintain these institutions, lest we lose them. This has been fascinating. Are there other resources that you would recommend our listeners check out if they're interested in learning more about the study of power or how these things interact with their lives? I um, I just mentioned, you know, fascism in the 30s, and for the present moment, I've been fascinated for several years now and reading everything I could on the Holocaust and on fascism in that period, because you see so many similarities, you see so many similar trends, um, down to the character of the rallies that are now in play, and the open displays of hatred, the open encouragement of hatred for its own sake animus for its own sake. So I would suggest people go and read Elie Weissel, go and read people um, who have written deeply about how do we understand what happened in Italy and in Germany and elsewhere um, during that moment and why those populations, in Germany's case probably the most advanced in Europe at the time, would have permitted this to occur. Um, and ask ourselves those hard questions and, and try to apply them in our current context. At least that's how I've been trying to grapple with understanding what the various uh, strands that I've been seeing of anti-democratic sentiment as it's emerged. I don't know that I have answers, but I think it's a good place to continue to look. You can go back further than that too, but that is a recent example. Or if you want examples that are even more recent, you can go to specific examples of genocide and, and the Serbian uh, conflict or the situation in Cambodia in the 1970s and the like. And you'll find the same kind of human attributes and the same sorts of questions around social mobilization that are at play in every case. So I would suggest without saying there's one great book, um, there are many, that folk uh, think about it in those terms. Thank you so much for your time today, Professor Max. Any last questions, thoughts, Brad? No, just thank you again for your time. Thank you both. How was that, Brad? It's always good to talk to Max and uh, deepen uh, my understanding of democracy, which I, I think 
has been one of the awakenings of coming back to graduate school here for mm. my PhD. But uh, I, uh, I'll, I'll be thinking about this for a while. But how about yourself, Yugosha? What are you thinking? Yeah, I mean, we started the conversation wondering about how various agencies get their power and the source of being able to kind of come together and exercise it in ways that we're not always uh, equipped to, um, you know, comprehend. So, and th- both of us have spent quite a lot of time with Professor Max, and we've learned a lot from him. So, th- this was great. I mean, it's different from other conversations for sure. <laughs> Indeed, well, it was great to be in the room with him, which right. was a, a starting point. But, I, you know, I, I think I'm intrigued here. We've talked about urban regime kind of understandings of power. And uh, regime is such an interesting word now that I think we've broken it down here. And, and I think we often think of these regimes in terms of the king or the queen, the, the leader. And I think this is useful going back to the way you framed our introduction about who holds power. We often think about that king and queen, but it's never just them, right? They're always, there's always, a, you know, going back to the days of feudalism, there's always a court of people around them. And nowadays the, the 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 regimes are have all these systems that keep them in place. There's all these other people and agencies acting mm-hmm. to allow that to happen. And I think that's even just that is a, is an important starting point to think that this is it's never just the one actor that is holding power in, in any situation. Right, right. I also appreciated the way uh, Professor Max um, defined democracy for us. I the way he you know broke down the term and. Um, to quote him over here, or slightly paraphrase maybe, that democracy sits on a cruel paradox um, and how this capitalist economy kind of creates um, an environment of injustice, but at the same time talks about or at least, um, you know, releases these social programs that, uh, you know, kind of they talk about ensuring quality in the same vein. So so that for me was very interesting to hear. Any other big takeaways for you from this? Yeah, so I think the coalition building piece here is just so important, both from the democratic agency piece and the kind of urban regime understandings for me. And I think what I come away kind of most thinking about from Max's uh, conversation here is the, the dynamic nature of how these regimes come together. And I think we often assume in our spaces, in nonprofits or wherever, that certain there's these coalitions are kind of stable. And I don't think that that's necessarily the case, that we, they may be stable over a year or two. But I think if we look backwards, that these things are actually immensely unstable. And so it is to assume that both your opposition is going to remain uh, stable and coherent, as well as assuming that your support system and your support regime is going to remain stable, I feel like is a is a is a fault that we really need to uh, be aware of in our thinking here, and not to assume that uh, these regimes are always the way that they're going to be. I mean, mm-hmm. if, just to take the current example, of we, you know, the the right in the United States is very closely tied to evangelical Christianity, and we kind of assume that that is a that is going to be a thing forever. I think that this kind of thinking encourages us to not assume that that connection, um, which I think that's that's the key of these theories in some ways is pushing us to re reestablish uh, whether our assumptions are appropriate in any given moment. But, right, right, and the um, the theory kind of proposes a democratic 
mobilization, which I thought was very interesting the way it was brought. You've talked about mo mobilization a little bit, but never really thought of it in terms of democratically mobilizing people or um, persuading people to kind of come together. Can you think of any such social movement, um, let's say thinking as far back as maybe 30 years, that showed signs of um, democratic mobilization? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think there we could there are countless ones, and I on both sides of the political aisle. I think you know we can look at um, uh, Black Lives Matter. We can look at uh, the backlash to Roe v. Wade right now. I think has mm -hmm. mobilized uh, democratic power in interesting ways. But I think on the flip side, you can also see. I mean, in the state of Virginia, we saw in our most recent election power being mobilized in this democratic setting for. Um, uh, largely around schools and weird uh, uh, understandings of what's being taught in schools that right. I don't agree with, but uh, power was well uh, was wielded in those ways, and we saw that mobilization taking place. So I think there's there's kind of countless things we can learn from in this space. But how about you? Anything come to mind that you think of as as really exemplified that that mobilization? Yeah, I mean, for me. Uh, I was gonna go with Roe v. Wade as well, so, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely an interesting question. Um, I haven't really thought about it in terms of democratically mobilizing people, and um, it's it's a strange question, and I really hope that we are able to dwell a little more on this understanding of what mobilization is in the in the upcoming episodes, which I know um, we will as well. Um, what about in terms of thinking from the view of social change practitioners? Any chief takeaways over there? Well, I think, you know, Max kind of started the conversation when we asked about urban regime by going to the the recognition that that there's a understanding of the political economy and all of this. And I think that it's to the detriment of any activists or NGO leaders that are trying to accomplish change to not consider the economic environment in which all of this is happening. Mm -hmm. And I think that we can get caught up on, on, and it can be easier to mobilize in some ways around smaller issues, but unless those economics come into play. And I, you know, I think about um, the recent backlash against Bud Light as an example of how when the economy isn't considered and some of these movements it, it, it uh, in the way that businesses are operating, it, it is to our detriment. And you may want to change that, but understanding it is, is a crucial part of, of starting right. those conversations. But how about you? Anything uh, you would hope that practitioners take away with them? Well, one of the key things for me was um, when Professor Max talked about establishing transparency when you're, um, when you're um, you know, dealing with communities or when you're trying to, I guess, bring in some kind of justice in the in the environment that you work in. And I thought it was very, very interesting. That was very, very similar to what we had heard from our trust scholars as well. They also talked about establishing transparency, being true to the people that you're talking to or you're hoping to uh, help or assist or guide in any way. So that for me seems that, you know, it's that it's that one long common thread um, that maybe attaches power and trust, and not only power and trust, many other social theories. So that definitely was something that um, resonated with me the most. It's quite interesting to think about how uh, um, 
much overlap there is and so that you can solve mm -hmm. multiple problems in these spaces using some of the same tools right. and that and how powerful something like transparency or you know a, a, an ethical framework or whatever it may be right. can be in these situations so well well put right right well this was great um so next time we're going to be delving a little more deeper into um, maybe one more theory and then get a little bit of more understanding about from the point of view of feminist philosophy. So, are you looking forward to that? Very much so.